Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL. New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we're privileged to have as our guest, Dr. Phil Swagel, director of the Nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, better known as CBO. His uh, agency just released its 2022 long-term budget outlook, which extends the budget projections and economic forecasts over the next 30 years under the assumption that current laws on spending and tax policy doesn't change. At the Concord Coalition, we look forward to this report every year because it gives us an unvarnished and unspun view of the multiple fiscal challenges that lie ahead. So if you want to face the future, which is the main point of this program, The CBO Long-Term Outlook is a good place to start. So uh, joining me in today's discussion are Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson. A little background, Phil Swagel became the 10th Director of the Congressional Budget Office on June 3rd, 2019. Previously, he was a professor at the University of Maryland School of Public Policy and a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and the Milken, Milken, excuse me, Institute. And uh, from 2006 to 2009, Dr. Swagel was Assistant Secretary for Economic Policy at the Treasury Department. He also served as Chief of Staff and Senior Economist at the Council of Economic Advisors of the White House and as an economist at the Federal Reserve Board and the International Monetary Fund. Uh, Phil, Tory, and Steve, welcome back to Facing the Future. Phil, you know, it seems to me that long-term projections are always uncertain, and uh, this year seems to be even a more challenging time for making 30-year economic and budget uh, projections because the near term itself has so many uncertainties. We've got lingering COVID and 40-year high inflation and the Federal Reserve raising interest rates and two quarters of uh, uh, economic contraction strong labor market, uh, and the war in Ukraine, which uh, involves, uh, you know, uh, prices for energy and food. So and that comes on top of all the other long term problems like uh, demographic challenges and rising health care costs. Putting it all together, CBO's latest outlook was a bit more optimistic in some ways than the last one, but it's still uh, not exactly a rosy scenario. So what are the deficits uh, and, and debt? Where are they headed for over the next 30 years? You know, it, it's an interesting situation because the deficit is narrowed in 2022. But of course, that's from the, um, you know, the, the very substantial pandemic-related spending of 2020 and 2021. Um, we're also seeing very strong revenues that uh, are also lowering the deficit. So we will have lower deficits this year. As a share of GDP, deficits will actually decline for a few more years both because of the, the narrower deficit and also because of the very high inflation, which means that nominal GDP is high. 
And of course, that's under current law. So this does not include reconciliation and the PACT Act and other, other um, legislation now in front of the Congress. Over time, the challenge, the fiscal trajectory looks a lot worse. Deficits start widening out again. Debt ratio starts going up again. Um, and we're projected for the deficit to reach 11.1% of GDP by 2052. And the average over that 30-year period, 7.3%. So it's just much higher. It's more than double the average of the past 50 years. Um, so the deficit is, is widening out, and the debt, which we can talk about, will um, increase accordingly. Of course, as the deficits go up and accumulate, that has a, an effect on the debt. And you mentioned deficits would, would I mean, they average about 3.5% or something like that over the past several years. Yeah. It's, it's somewhere around there. So It's 3.5% so, over, over the last 50 years. Yeah. So, I mean, it's quite a break from where we have been uh, historically. And that's, that's right. true with the debt, too, isn't it? I mean, that, that goes up substantially. We, we project the debt at 98% of GDP at the end of this year. And again, it's held down for, uh, for a few years by you know, the narrowing deficits and especially by, the, um, by high inflation. The debt ratio begins to rise again in 2024. So just two more years, we hit a new uh, record high in 2031. So once we go above 107% of GDP, that's a new high. And then out at the end of the 30-year projection period, we reach 185% of GDP, which and then, and then, of course, we keep going. The challenge is not immediate. It's not this year. But the challenge is that the trajectory is daunting and requires action. Tori? And so in talking about these, these trends and deficits and debt over the next three decades, in your mind, when, what has your, your research uh, shown? What are the driving forces behind those? Uh, so the, essentially, there's two main factors behind our widening deficit and then the mounting debt. Um, and so one is net interest costs, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, it's both as the level of debt or the amount of debt goes up, that means we're, we're paying interest on a, on a larger stock of debt. We also have interest rates rising, right? So interest rates have been um, low over the last several years. Uh, for a number of reasons, we see those factors reversing. And then as the debt level goes up, well, that also has an impact in driving interest rates higher. And so the debt, the larger debt means that we're more, in we're more leveraged as a nation. And so a given increase in interest rates has a bigger effect on net, net interest outlays. So that's one. And that, that's the biggest factor. The second is that even though revenues have been strong, and we see them you know, not, not being as strong over the 30 year horizon as they have in the last year or two. Um, uh, we still have pretty decent revenues. The challenge is that spending is set to rise. And this is entitlement spending. This is on, um, on Social Security and on the major healthcare programs. Now, of course, that is not the same by far as CBO saying, oh, therefore we need to do something about spending and revenues are fine. Right, it's we are looking right. at the, the balance between the two and not providing a policy record uh, recommendation. On those two things, you you came up with some alternative scenarios. I noticed. Mm -hmm. I mean, just just changing some of the key variables, and you don't need to go through all of them. No, no, I won't. <laughs> Maybe I'll talk qualitatively. I'll talk qualitatively. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. Two, two things. I mean, what what generally mm -hmm. do they show, and and why do you think it's important to have those alternatives just for illustrative purposes? Of course, no, these are great questions. So um, uh, why do we do these sensitivity analysis, these illustrative scenarios, is to provide policymakers and the public with a sense of what happens if our projections 
are are off and in in both ways um so we do well what if interest rates are higher or lower than we have in our projection right for the purposes of the federal budget we have to have a single projection right that's the forms the budget baseline of course that that um that congress uses for you know for many purposes um but we want to show policymakers, well, what if it's better or worse? So we do that with interest rates, higher or lower. We do that with GDP growth. We do that through productivity growth, is pro if productivity growth is higher or lower. And then we also, in this, um, in the LTBO that we just released last week, we also look at discretionary spending, which of course Congress decides on year by year. In the LTBO, that's just projected out by a formula, right? We don't know what Congress will do in the future. The first 10 years, the formula is set by statute. And then the, the latter 20 years in the projection period, we just have discretionary spending staying constant as a share of nominal GDP. And, and so we look at, well, what if that spending is essentially is, is more than our, in our projections? Yeah, is higher. Mm -hmm. So um, that, and so that's the different um, sensitivity analysis we do. And of course, one could do you know, lots of other sensitivity analysis. And the, the takeaway I would say is that even if things are better than we, um, you know, than we have in our central projection, if interest rates are lower, or really by quite a lot, and if productivity growth is stronger, again, really by quite a lot, the debt ratio still rises, so still rises above 140%, above the historical average, above the historical max. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, if things are worse, well, then it's, um, you know, it's really much more difficult, you know, rising, rising above, you know, close to 200%. So I want to add, uh, dive into this a little bit more. Mm -hmm. you, you've said, and we've mentioned here, the Congressional Budget Office is required to produce a current law baseline that's actually written in statute, which basically mm -hmm. says you can't anticipate what Congress is going to do in the future, which is what sort of makes these alternative scenarios really helpful is because we know that Congress is going to do something, right? They're not just going to go to D.C. and sit on their hands for you know 30 years. So I'm curious, of those alternative scenarios, uh, that that CBO has produced. Is there anything in there that, in your mind, is more plausible than the current law baseline? Uh, it's that's uh, a good question. And as you said, Congress will take action. Of course, there are many issues and challenges facing the nation, and that's what policymakers come to Washington for, and of course, do at state and local level as well, is to address challenges. Sometimes that means more spending. Sometimes it means less spending. Changes in revenue. Um, uh, you know, I'm not sure. I don't. Uh, it says I don't want to anticipate what a future Congress will do. What, what one thing we do, which is you'll see the relationship to the question, is we provide Congress every two years with a book of budget options, so options to reduce the deficit, and we'll have that at the end of this year. So in December of 2022, we'll put that out again, and that will have a wide range of options, including things that I don't think Congress is going to do. So, for example, one of the options in there is to um, Reduced defense spending, and which of course would would lower the deficit. And well, you, there's your your reaction in some sense is uh yeah, yeah is in line with what I'm saying. I, I look around the world, given what's happening with our relationship with China, Russia's behavior in invading Ukraine, it doesn't seem like future Congresses are going to make the kind of large reductions in defense spending that we're going to put out there in 22 as uh, December 20, 2022 as an mm -hmm. option. But again, that's just to show policymakers, well, here's a wide range of options and what, what that would mean. What, sorry, what, what that would mean for the deficit. So. Do you think those budget options would include letting the uh, 2017 tax cuts expire? Uh, so we will have a range of, um, uh, of 
tax options. Um, the current law, of course, the personal side of the um, 2017 Tax Act mostly expires at the end of 2025, and that's in current law. Um, we will show, again, we, we do it in, in the direction of lowering the deficit. So we will show a range of tax, in, of tax increases on the personal side um, and on the, on the business side and others. Mm -hmm. The one I don't think we're going to have is the wealth tax. Um, and that's it's essentially the administration hasn't mm -hmm. specified their proposal enough for it to, it to be you know uh, estimated. Actually, well, the Joint Committee on Taxation, which is uh, our sister agency, is is on the fifth floor of the Ford Building. We're on the fourth floor. Um, they they of course do those uh, those estimates of of tax proposals. Right, Steve. I want to bring you into the conversation as our chief economist. Go ahead. <laughs> so you, you were talking earlier about you know, one of the biggest risks uh, long-term for the budget is uh, the interest cost on the debt. Mm -hmm. And you know, one of the things that's sort of different that's occurred in, in recent years is the change in the way the Federal Reserve is conducting monetary policy. I mean, traditionally, they've sort of tried to raise or lower interest rates uh, by going into the market and doing you know, open mm -hmm. market operations. And one of the things that they've done now is, is they now have interest on reserves. Mm -hmm. And because of the financial crisis and because of the pandemic, you know, there's been a huge run up in the Fed's balance sheet. It went from you know, under a trillion dollars back in 2007 to now in you know, almost $9 trillion. Mm -hmm. So you have this, this sort of you know, new element to making budget projections because you know, the Fed's balance sheet and interest on reserves affects mm -hmm. what are called remittances, which are the, the, the money that the, the Fed pays back to the Treasury, which affects, of course, the budget. Mm -hmm. And then you have the question of, you know, if, if the Fed is going to raise interest rates, do they raise interest rates by changing interest on reserves or do they, rate, you know, change interest rates by changing the amount of reserves? And given how big their balance is now, mm -hmm. how does CBO go about sort of projecting what the Fed may or may not do, because obviously that that affects directly the, the federal budget. Uh, I know it's a great question. And, and you're right, it, it does affect the federal budget. And exactly as you said, that when the Fed's balance sheet is large, well, that of course has an effect on the economy through, um, you know, th through the effect of Fed transactions on interest rates, but it has a direct effect uh, effect on the budget through the remittances, as you say. So we track those carefully. We track the composition of treasury borrowing, um, you know, how much is short-term and treasury bills, how much is, is longer-term, 10-year and 30-year, uh, and so on, treasury bonds. Um, and so that's the net interest payments, right? We look at the composition of that. And then we look at the remittances. We track what the, the Fed's holdings are, what that means for the Fed's future profitability. And then we have a projection of, well, what does that mean for the Fed, um, the, the remittance is how many dollars are flowing back from the Fed to the Treasury. And that the one thing is a little, um, it's it not strange, but just for our accounting, is those remittances, we treat them as if it's money coming from outside the government, even though, of course, the Fed is part of the US government, right? It's federalreserve.gov, um, to, to keep track of the, um, the, the, the flows, the remittances and the net interest payments, we do it. Um, in terms of separately. So the Treasury pays out net interest payments, including to the Fed, and then the Fed pays back remittances. Um, and that, in terms of that, it's both a, a, a positive and a, a negative that when the, um, the debt stock is larger, well, that means more net interest payments. But when the Fed is purchasing those Treasury 
securities, that means more remittances. So just to, to, go, to finish up, um, we have the Fed's balance sheet declining over the, over the coming years, right, as they um, uh, adjust monetary policy away from the, um, the you know, emergency steps they took during, during the pandemic, but remaining large. And so we have a, you know, we, we have to make a projection, both of what they'll do on interest rates and what they'll do on the balance sheet. So those remittances will shrink, but remain uh, pretty substantial uh, out into the future. So, so do you think that the, the, the change in the Fed's way of conducting monetary policy, is that going to have any effect on sort of, you know, real interest rates or the interest rate differentials between the short term, you know, three month mm-hmm. uh, treasury bills versus, you know, the 10 year bonds? So those are sort of the two, two rates that you guys tend to follow. Um, mm-hmm. does, does the Fed's change in policy change the way CBO anticipates either the level of interest rates or the, you know, the, the slope of the yield curve, as they say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Does it have any effect on that? Or you guys sort of uh, abstract away from that? Oh, no, no, it does. It does. And we, um, we, we look at that carefully. So we have to have a projection for, as you said, the slope of the yield curve, because we're looking at the composition of the treasury uh, securities and there's different interest rates on different treasury securities. Um, so we do have a view about what will happen to, uh, to interest rates um, we, uh, you know, for that, we focus uh, on the, you know, what markets are saying to give us a view of what's happening uh, today, what we expect to happen in the next few years. And then we have a, it's called a factor model over the long-term horizon. So we look at the long-term determinants of real, of real interest rates, uh, demographics, investors, um, demand for safe, da- safe assets versus risk, foreigners' demand for U.S. dollar assets, and, and so on. So that drives the real return um, to capital in the U.S., and then that in turn feeds back into the interest rate on, on Treasury securities. And we have an inflation projection, of course, then that determines the, the nominal uh, Treasury interest rate. There's actually, just to say one last thing, there is an appendix in the LTBO that goes through some of the work we've done over the last year in trying to improve the way we calculate our projection of the interest rate that applies to the treasury debt stock. And it turns out we were overestimating it, that we weren't taking into account enough the the detailed composition of the the treasury debt in a way that overestimated net interest payments. So compared to last year, um, the future is not quite as difficult as it was in this one sense, because of our better estimate of um, net interest payments. And then I'll just go back to where I started, that the interest trajectory, the, the trajectory for net interest payments is still really difficult. So even with our lowering the effective interest rate on treasury securities, um, there is that that is really a gigantic challenge is what's happening with net interest outlays. Yeah, that's one of the main challenges of, of because the Fed running up the balance sheet has been so unprecedented and, and, and the mm-hmm. unwinding. I mean, we've been, Steve has been asking these questions of everybody that mm-hmm. comes on trying to get an answer. And <laughs> I mean, a great it's a question. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it really is, uh, you know, we, we we're running this grand experiment and, and we'll know when, when we get there. Uh, mm-hmm. We're going to have to uh, take a, a short break here. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby and Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson and I, are discussing the long-term budget outlook with the director of the Congressional Budget Office, Dr. Phil Swagel. CBO just released its uh, latest report. It's a good read, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and... uh, 
Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with Phil Swagel, who is the director of the Congressional Budget Office, and we're discussing CBO's latest uh, long-term budget uh, and economic projections. Um, you know, we were talking about how big the deficit and debts get uh, when you look out 30 years. So you think about, well, what if Congress actually wants to do something about it to, to change course? Early action is better than than delay. Uh, I, I take it from the report because it it seems like delay makes the challenges that much more difficult. Could you address uh, the as that aspect in the report? Waiting to address the fiscal uh, challenge makes makes it more difficult in the sense that the eventual steps are larger, have to be larger. You know whether that's more spending cuts or more revenue increases. And intuitively, the reason is that is a generational one, that by, by waiting, that means there's some generations who don't share in their burden of the eventual um, uh, adjustment. You know, again, whether it's revenues or spending, the CBO doesn't have a, a position, wouldn't, wouldn't tell Congress what to do. Um, we just calculate how much. And so yeah, we 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 yeah. baby boomers are very much aware of that fact, you know. Okay, okay. <laughs> so um, so that and that's the generational issue. Um, and you, one could also talk about well, within a generation, uh, who pays? You know, is it for people with high incomes, high well, high lifetime incomes, high wealth? Um, is it is it more evenly spread? What's this is what's the progressivity of the policy measures that are that are taken? But whatever the um. The, the choice is made within a generation, waiting means that the burden is, co- is more heavily concentrated on future generations. And it's, it's a pretty big spread. I mean, I, I looked at some of the numbers and it's like, you know, you've got a if you if you wanted to hold a debt to GDP at uh, where it was before the pandemic, suppose you, you wanted to get it back there by 2052. And that's already pretty high. But I mean, it, it the choices get much more. Uh, it's like you'd have to make changes of 3.5% of GDP each year if they started now, but then it gets over 4% each year. If you wait five Mm -hmm. years and it gets over 5%, almost 6%. And translating that into dollars is just, um, you're talking of a deficit reduction package that's off the radar screen in terms of the tax increases and and spending cuts that you would need it's is is a very daunting challenge and just to add yeah. i mean what i said before about that the report will put out in december but that will give policymakers a magnitude I, you know I, I mentioned that one of the um uh, items in that report will be lower defense spending again by a meaningful amount enough to change the fiscal trajectory well that will give policymakers an indication of okay here's the contribution to the eventual adjustment that's needed. And then of course, policymakers can decide how much is this security um, pain, I guess is the right word. What does that mean for our security situation? Um, And again, there's no policy recommendation, but at least give a sense of what what it means. And and again, I just, I use that as one example. There'll be lots of um, example, lots of possible policies on both the spending side and the revenue side. So Phil, in a, in a prior life, um, prior life, one of my first jobs out of, out of graduate school, I was a revenue estimator. And I actually had it pretty lucky then because I was forecasting at the state level. And it was at a time when the, the economy was just growing steadily upward. I didn't have to worry about turning points. I didn't have to worry about tax law changes or anything. So I'm really very much in awe of what you and your staff at the Congressional Budget Office do, because I have to think that there are extraordinary challenges in projecting future trends in the federal budget anywhere, especially right now. Now, mm-hmm. given you know we've got economic data that's going is is behaving you know 
ir- irrationally, in my opinion. You know, Congress is routinely failing to, to, to produce its spending bills on time. You know, there's COVID. I mean, it just it's like I, I just I cannot imagine trying to forecast in this environment. So in, in your experience and that and of your staff, what, what are your what do you think are the biggest challenges right now in, in forecasting trends in the federal budget? You know, right now, the revenues are especially difficult to forecast on the um, budgetary side. Revenues have been very strong. They're very strong in, in 2021. And of course, the nominal GDP growth was very high. We, we, we had positive real GDP growth last year. Obviously, we've had negative GDP growth um, in the, the first half of this year. But last year, nominal GDP growth was was high, both because of we had some GDP, you know, real GDP growth as we continue to rebound from the pandemic, but also because the price level rose by a lot. We had high inflation. And so revenues naturally rise with inflation because we tax a nominal wa- uh, nominal income base, whether wages or corporate profits and you know, other tax bases. Um, uh, you know, wages on the social security contributions and Medicare contributions. Um, Revenues were stronger even so, right? Even stronger than would be expected by historical relationships with the economy. And there could be lots of reasons. It, it could well, it could be that data will be provised up and the economy was even stronger than we thought. It could be um, there were more capital gains realizations than would have been predicted from the historical relationships. It could be there's more inequality. And so there's more income at the top where the tax rate is, is higher in our progressive income tax system. We just, we don't know, and we won't know for a couple of years because we have to wait until we get the individual tax data for 2021, mm-hmm. which right now we've we've recently gotten 2019, and so it'll be a while before we know. But that is that on the fiscal side, it's a challenge, and there's lots of economic challenges. You know, where will inflation go? Where will interest rates go? What, what will happen with GDP, with consumption? Um, all of that, of course, feeds into the fiscal outlook. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good segue, Steve, to uh, inquire a little bit more about inflation. <laughs> Yes, I mean, you know, obviously the, the big news since you know the middle of last year mm-hmm. is inflation uh, has been much higher than than almost everyone had expected or anticipated. Mm-hmm. And you know, in the short term, obviously, when you have high inflation, that shows up in terms of the budget as cost of living adjustments for Social Security, for example, and it also, as you you pointed out, in terms of revenue, mm-hmm. because of the way the tax code is indexed. Um, when you have higher inflation, you get higher revenue because people get pushed up into higher tax brackets called, in a sense, bracket creep. So there's there's clear short-term effects of inflation. Um, but I guess it's not as clear how long those effects persist mm-hmm. unless there's a change in, in inflation expectations. I mean, if you go back to like the late 70s, early 80s, you saw you know, inflation rise around the level this that we're seeing today, mm-hmm. but it took a while for interest rates or financial markets to basically catch up, or perhaps a better way to say it is it took a while for financial markets to lose full confidence in the Fed's ability to control inflation. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, we've seen in the last you know, 30, 40 years, the Fed has built up this sort of reserve of confidence that, yeah, inflation may be bad now, but they seem to have, you know, Kept, you know, in terms of looking at financial market interest rates, the long-term, you know, ten-year bond rate is still below three percent, whereas inflation is nine. You know, markets are not going to take negative rates forever. So, mm-hmm. I guess the, the concern in the long run is if inflation expectations somehow become unanchored, and even though inflation comes down in the near term, financial markets are not 
yet convinced that inflation's come down and interest rates stay higher longer than what we're anticipating now. I mean, what, what's the risk there? As you said, high, higher inflation, um, as, as we've seen over the past uh, year, year and a half, feeds into the federal budget, both on the, the spending side and the revenue side. Right? We talked about strong revenues. On the spending side, as you said, the federal government buys things, whether directly, you know, buy lots of goods and services, the federal government prov- provides transfer payments that like Social Security, as you said, are indexed to inflation. The federal government pays for things indirectly, so nursing home care. The federal doesn't government doesn't pay the salaries of nursing most nursing home workers directly, but pays the you know pays for a lot of the care or supports the care in various ways, and so indirectly is on the hook for higher wages of you know of lots of people in the economy. And again, of course, higher wages are for people are a positive. The fiscal lens provides a challenge. So higher inflation means higher spending, higher revenue. What's interesting is that those two roughly cancel each other out, or roughly are a wash, except for interest payments. If higher inflation leads to higher interest rates, well, then interest outlays go up. And so that is the danger of higher inflation is coming on the, the net interest side. And as you said, if inflationary expectations get un- unmoored, people don't believe that the Fed will succeed in lowering inflation, well, then we'd expect to see interest rates go up and, and the fiscal challenge getting uh, more difficult. Our forecast has inflation coming down. So we see the Fed as succeeding over time in reducing inf- oh, inflation and inflationary expectations back toward its target, but it will take some time. And that is part of the fiscal challenge that we face now. Here's a uh, an uncertainty that we get questions about, and we didn't 30 years ago when the Concord Coalition started. Particularly younger people are interested in the effects of climate change, both on the budget and on the economy. And CBO has begun to refer to that in the long term outlook and and done some reports on that. Um, Could you give us kind of, you know, an assessment of uh, how climate change is factored into the long term reports as of now? We do look at that and we now break out um, the impact of climate on the uh, fiscal trajectory separately. In our work, that comes in through GDP, right? So climate change, it helps some people, right? If you're a farmer in the Dakotas, well, climate change is, you know, from your perspective, might be a positive. But on the, for the country as a whole, climate change has a negative impact on, on productivity and on, on GDP. It's a small impact over time. Um, but but that accumulates over time. So it's a small impact in any one year, but it accumulates over time. And of course, it's that um, what I'm talking about is the flow of income is GDP. You know, obviously we look around what's happening in the country. There's just terrible news out of Kentucky over the past several days of uh, flooding. I actually don't know if that's related to, to climate change, but we all understand there's there's natural disasters um, going on, um, wildfires in, in the West, and there is an, a huge impact of those natural disasters in dollar terms and human terms. The effect of climate change is the, sl- the longer term uh, impact on GDP and productivity. So we have that over time, over a 30 year horizon accumulates to about 1% of GDP. So that's a, it's a meaningful number, but over a longer term trajectory. Our mission is to support the Congress. And so whenever the Congress comes forward uh, should it come forward with climate legislation, we want to make sure that we're ready for it. So we have a, a huge agenda on um, related to, to climate. We're looking at modeling. We're, we have a modeling effort on electric vehicles, about what policy would do to the uh, demand for and cost of electric vehicles, including the fiscal cost of subsidies. Um, we have a modeling effort on the power sector, 
which is an important um, part of both policy and uh, emissions. And then we have a modeling effort on the sort of bigger picture of a, well, what happens with a, a cap and trade or a carbon tax, or if there's spending that's essentially subsidies that um, analytically would have some uh, impact for, that might be similar to a carbon tax and cap and trade. So we're, we're, we're getting ready for um, climate legislation whenever that happens, you know, whether it's well, you know, Congress- now or in the future. Congress may put you to the test on that very soon. So Not this week. <laughs> so we'll see about it. Um, we're going to take our second break. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with Dr. Phil Swagel, who's the director of the Congressional Budget Office. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing the long-term budget outlook with Dr. Phil Swagel, who is the director of the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. And we're discussing the long-term economic and budgetary outlook that uh, CBO just uh, produced. And, you know, one thing we haven't talked about, Phil, is demographics and the importance of demographics, uh, for particularly for making long-term projections on the budget and the economy. Um, you know, one statistic that really caught my eye in this report is uh, that by 2043, CBO projects that there will be more deaths in this country than there will be births, which uh, is going to make it very difficult to maintain population growth. In fact, will be entirely dependent upon uh, uh, immigration. Um, This factors in 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 many ways, uh, I take it, into the budget and economic outlook. It does. It does. I mean, so in the near term, right, we have about two or 2.1 million people who are still missing from the labor force as compared to the trajectory we were on before the pandemic. Now, of those two or so million, we see one million is still coming back over the next couple of quarters. And that that supports our, our relatively benign or relatively optimistic view on uh, on inflation. Inflation is already higher than we expected, but that would you know that would be a challenge uh, if people don't come back. Um, there's another million who are not who we see as not coming back compared to the, uh, the pre-pandemic situation. So that's kind of the near term and it affects the economy, it affects the fiscal situation. Over the long term, crises such as the pandemic and the financial crisis before it have an effect on fertility. So we had lower fertility, during the crisis, during the pandemic, we see pr- fertility rebounding somewhat, but still not rebounding um, to where, where we were before the uh, pandemic, and which was the same thing as before the financial crisis. And that has an effect on the long-term uh, economy and the long-term fiscal trajectory. And then immigration. Um, so as you said, after 2043, immigration will provide all of the net increase in the U.S. population. We see, of course, well, immigration has been low um, during the pandemic, um, and uh, policy challenges what happens to immigration in the future. And of course, the composition of immigration matters for the economy as well. So we have an aging population uh, as well. And that has, I mean, uh, so much of the budget is uh, directed to healthcare and retirement. Social Security mm-hmm. and Medicare make up a pretty large portion. And the healthcare projections combined with the demographics really drive those programs. Social security is essentially all driven by demographics. Um, you know, but well, of course, by the economy, but for a given economy, um, the demographics are driving social security. And then Medicare is about half and half. So half of the increased costs of Medicare result from additional cost growth in healthcare spending. Healthcare spending 
grows by more than the economy. And then about half of it is by demographics. The aging uh, population means, of course, naturally more people are using uh, additional health care. Just politically, uh, before I go to Steve, I mean, that that's what makes budget policy so challenging is, uh, you know, a big part of the growth, really all the growth, projected growth mm-hmm. is, is from those programs, which are, you know, being... They go up automatically by benign forces like uh, population mm-hmm. aging, uh, population, uh, the rising cost of healthcare, mm-hmm. and uh, little subtle things like that uh, that drive spending higher and are politically difficult to uh, to deal with. One other consideration is that we know there will be future um, situations or future issues for which policymakers will want to respond. And so if you look at a report, we have a chart of the debt to GDP ratio. And of course, it goes up by a lot during the financial crisis and during the pandemic when policymakers naturally respond to those uh, events and fiscal policy is part of the response, spending and revenues. Um, there will be some future event. We don't have it in our projection just because we don't, pr- we, we can't, we don't, we can't predict a crisis in the future. But we know there will be some. And so in some sense, policymakers want to keep that in mind that there will be future uses for fiscal policy that we just, you know, we, we can't know about. Right. Which which makes it all the more important to try to do what we can do for the stuff that we can uh, project anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and Steve. Yeah. So I want to I want to go back a little bit to, to the demographic question. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we saw basically prior to 2007. Uh, fertility rates were were roughly two, 2.0 and it's more or less replacement rate. In other words, if if the average woman doesn't have roughly two births over her lifetime, the population won't replace itself and it'll begin to decline. And of course, what we've seen since 2007 is that fertility rates have in fact fallen. They're, you know, I think the last numbers were around 1.6 and, and you you, you just said that, that CBO assumes that it's going to go up a little bit to 1.75. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, if 2.0 is replacement rate and 1.75 is <laughs> clearly less than two, that would imply that the U.S. population would, would begin to decline. And of course, that's being offset in uh, your projections by immigration. And so you have the level of immigration at roughly a million a year. And, and over time, I, I think out over the longer uh, window, it, that, that actually rises uh, to, to close to 2 million um, by the end of, of the projections. And so I guess the question is, if you, if you look at fertility rates around the world, uh, they've been declining everywhere. And then part of that is simply a function of economic growth. As, as countries become richer, uh, better health, better income, higher income, they tend to have fewer kids. Mm-hmm. And so the question becomes, you know, is it a safe assumption to assume that you know, while our population fertility is declining, that's going to be made up in the long term by immigration. But if you assume that other countries also are having falling fertility rates and they're also having hopefully, you know, economic growth and development, you know, mm-hmm. is, is there some uncertainty here that in fact the US population won't decline because immigration could potentially not offset our fertility rate decline? We see immigration is continuing, and of course, that's subject to policy changes, and so we have to make some projection about what's the effect of current law on future immigration. So we do have a rebound in immigration because some of the difficulties of um, uh, immigration during the pandemic was just, in a sense, ministerial 
that um, you know the U.S. consulates and embassies uh, overseas were not um, you know at, at full operation, and so it was just mechanically difficult to get a visa and and get to the U.S. And so as that uh, continues to normalize, that will um, you know lead to higher immigration. Um, then what are the policy changes in the future? Well, of course, we don't have that in our baseline since that's current law. Um, and then what's the demand uh, in the rest of the world for people to come here? And so that we we do see that as still strong, that people still want to come here. And of course, both you know uh, legally and, and people without do- out documentation um, look like they want to come here. It's then an issue of our policy, you know, to what extent do we want them? And, and you know, what are the numbers? Um, but for now, to me, that's that's one of the biggest signs of optimism I have for the future of the U.S. economy, that people want to come here. And, you know, for all the problems we talked about and the, the fiscal difficulties, it's really a pretty big boat of confidence uh, in the U.S. economy. People ask us, well, why worry about this stuff? Why do deficits matter? So we've been talking about some pretty scary numbers. And uh, Steve just wrote an issue brief for us about why they matter. But um I just uh, just like to get your your take on, uh, you know, <laughs> why do we care that the debt to GDP ratio is going from 98 point uh, whatever it is to close to 200 percent? The challenge with the daunting debt trajectory and the, the daunting deficit and debt trajectory is that is something that plays out over time, that interest rates remain at moderate levels now the federal government is, is able to borrow and able to fund itself at present, and we see it in, into the immediate future. So there's no, you know, there's no. It's this urgent crisis. The, you know, world is stopping. The federal government spending is stopping, and, and things like that. But it's something that has to be addressed over time because of the long-term implications. Right? It's a um, rising risk. Of financial par- market problems, there's impacts on on interest rates, which then affect cons- consumer spending and affect business investment. And so, h- more debt means higher interest rates. That affects business investment, and that affects job growth and and productivity. So, job creation and productivity, and that's what are the the opportunities available to, pe- available to people, and then what are the incomes that they will see from taking those jobs, and the fiscal trajectory is set to undermine all of that, right? Well, the U.S. will still be a vibrant economy, but without addressing the fiscal challenge, over time, the, um, you know, some of that vibrancy will be uh, subtracted, won't be avail- available to us. So in, there's a sense in which it's the problem that we, will, um, we won't know about, we won't see directly because it will be things that we miss out on. But then there's a rising risk of, of things that we do see, of, of a sharp crisis. If investors lose confidence in the U.S. economy, well, that would lead to sharp spikes, whether in interest rates or inflation. Um, it doesn't seem to be the case now. I mean, when, when things are bad, people and their, their dollars, their, their financial assets, want to be in the U.S. So this is not, you know, not an immediate crisis, but it's a challenge that grows over time. Tori had a lightning round question. We just have uh, about a minute or so left. Mm-hmm. But uh, Tori, what's your what's your lightning round question? Oh, uh, the question of the day that seems to be the headline of every newspaper, every business journal, every economist is, are we in a recession? The data we have now, so we're, we're talking uh, the beginning of August, we, we can't tell yet. The economy slowed in the first half of of 2022. And so we had negative GDP growth for two consecutive quarters in the data that, that we have so far. 
Um, now these these data get revised, so we'll have to see what uh, what happens to those data. Um, but GDP growth uh, was negative, and we see that in in um, you know, related data on on personal income and dis disposable income, so after tax income. Um, at the same time, the labor market is tight, right? We see continued job growth at the end of this week. We'll have uh, new data for July on the um, the labor market. It looks like businesses are continuing to hire and con continuing to find it difficult uh, to hire. So that is 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 the opposite side of um, of the negative GDP growth. Is this a squaring that and knowing what's happening to the economy? Are we are we in recession? We just need more time. We'll have to see what happens in the months to months to come with incomes, with production, with GDP, consumption, with our exports, what's going on in the rest of the world, um, and then with the labor market. So it, it, that's the challenge we're in right now. It's it's there's conflicting signals, and it will mm -hmm. take us some time to uh, to distill what it means. Phil, that's. Uh all the time we have for this week. I want to uh, thank uh, you and uh, the Congressional Budget Office for all the great work that you do. Heroic work. Uh, want to thank you for all your insights and uh, for taking some time. I know this is busy time for you to be with us on Facing the Future. Thanks to Tori and Steve for their insights as well. This is your host, Bob Bixby. I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future.